Well, we had a great time so far. It's been a glorious, glorious morning. I love that. Really, what we've been hearing is um, the message that we want to preach today, and that is that God loves us. And I, I love that redemptive message that I heard with all three testimonies, that God uh, changed my life, that God loved me deeply. And all of us could stand up here and say those types of things. We could talk about God's love. It's, um, it's the theme of life. God has designed us to be loved, and he's designed us to love others. Sin has kind of confused that a lot. But still, that's the message that rings so deeply within our hearts is that that God loves us in that sense. It seems to me that the Hallmark Channel has tried... Who who laughed about the Hallmark Channel? (laughs) The Hallmark Channel is the channel of romantic love. And the theme is repeated over and over again. I am impressed by the number of times they can come up with different characters to say the same thing. The storyline runs like this. Somebody's in distress. Somebody moves into their lives. They have the resources to help them. They fall in love with each other. Some confusion happens. They separate for a little while, come back together. All of the resources they have, they pour out to this person, and they go off happily ever after. Is that it? I don't know. I don't think I missed anything. I mean, and you know, all of you applauding and responding to that, that means you're watching way too much Hallmark. You're watching way too much. You know, that's not what we need to do. But it is true. And I'll tell you, the reason we like those stories is they do end well. And there is love that prevails. And some of you, if you're not ashamed to admit it this morning, even have some tears when, when you see that happening. Uh, that's that. And the only reason that resonates within us is because it has a redemptive message to it. That is the message of God, not romantic love. I'm not talking about that. But it is a love. It is a love where someone comes into our lives, that someone is God, and he recognizes within us that we desperately need him. And he knows that he has everything that we need, and he uh, supplies that to us. Getting that message across to us is that the dance of love that God does with us until we come to the understanding of that. I, I suppose as long as we live, we'll never get tired of a, of a love story and a love story that ends well. And I want to tell you a love story today because this is the third message on the Advent. Pastor Aaron preached on what it is to have hope. Pastor Corey preached last week on joy. This week we preach on love, that God brought love to us. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll have um, Pastor Tom speaking on prince, a peace, what God has brought to us. But today the theme is love. Actually, we spoke on this about three weeks ago when I was in First John with you, and we gave a definition of love. And love was simply that love is a sacrificial, God-empowered, demonstrated commitment to an imperfect person to do everything within the power that God gives you to advance the cause of Christ in that person's life to the glory of God. 
That's really the definition that is that we shared with you. I know all of you wrote that down and got it. So, but it is. I think all of those are important parts of that, and I see that demonstrated with Christ. But the love story that I want to tell you uh, is, uh, and I, I just want you to sit back and listen to a story this morning. It's God's story. And as we look at that, then I'll draw some conclusions at the very end that we can draw from this. It's a story that you're familiar with, and we never grow tired of it. And some of you are thinking, oh, we're going to talk about the birth of Christ. No, we're going to go before that. We're going to go back way before that. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to find there that God introduces himself to a man named Abram. And he says to him that, Abram, I'm going to make you, you, a nomadic man that he was and not known and yet now well-known in the world today, but I'm going to make of you a great nation. You'll be as the sand of the seas. You'll be as the stars of the skies. And he said, this is so significant. In fact, later on in Genesis, he, said, he makes the covenant relationship with them, and it rests uniquely on God. Many times when people would make a covenant relationship with each other, they would separate sacrificial animals, and then they would walk between those. And the implication of that is that if we violate this covenant, may it happen to us even as it has happened with these sacrificial animals. May something difficult come upon us. Well, when it came time to make that covenant relationship with Abraham, or Abram at this time, uh, he, uh, only God walked through the, the animals that had been divided. And what he was saying to Abram at that time is, do you, do you not understand that what I'm doing for you and this love relationship that I'm starting with you rests upon me? I'm going to do this. I will be the one that makes all of this possible. And that began this relationship. I love the fact that Abram was willing to obey, and, and we start the birth of the nation of Israel it's really fun to read in the scriptures the number of times that God addresses his children, Israel, in terms of how he loves them. I love it when after the nations were divided and Solomon was uh, uh, ruling and he was or close to the time of the division there and the queen of Sheba came to visit him and she said to him, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. The queen of Sheba recognized in this love story that God loved Israel. I love it even in Deuteronomy when we see and uh, when he talks about who Israel was. It was not because Israel was lovely and had something to really offer to God and was doing it. Not the case at all. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be blessed, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who, uh, this is in Genesis, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and, the one, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he also goes on to say in terms of that, how the Lord will provide, and says you were not great in number in Deuteronomy where he said this. It was not because of your greatness. It's because of my love for you that I do this. 
I think another place in which we find an unusual situation, this is after, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the story, that uh, Israel did not always maintain that keen, deep relationship with God. In fact, they challenged God many times in the course of that love relationship. And so much so that Hosea the prophet was uh, challenged by God to take his wife back, who had been unfaithful to him, and he says, you draw your wife back as I do. He says that even in that sense. The Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. It says later on there in Hosea, the 11th chapter, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called him. So what we find then is the beginning of this dynamic love relationship in which God is the one who is seeking out Israel and is providing for her over and over again. There were not very many things that God required in this love relationship. They were not to follow other gods. They were to listen carefully to his word, and they were not to practice any level of immorality. And yet we find over and over again this uh, aspect of distrust, we can uh, look at the time when they were in the, the whole desert experience there and the number of times they complained and they even wished that they could go back to Egypt, even though God had miraculously set them free after they'd grown into a great nation. And yet they complained. They complained against God. And God proved his faithfulness, giving water out of a rock, and meat on the, the uh, bird, the quail, and the, winds of the, wing, the wings of the wind. And he did all of that. And yet they were unfaithful. We, we find even in the book of Judges, uh, the cycle there, about seven cycles in which uh, the story goes, they were blessed, they, were, they moved away from God, the Israelites, God's ones that he loved, they moved away from God, began to follow other gods, and began to be immoral, and then God brought judgment upon them. They repented. They began to have a life of ease. Things weren't going pretty well. They moved away from God. They began to worship other gods, and they began to practice immorality. God brought judgment upon them, and then they repented, and God blessed them. Seven cycles in about 370 years, they went through that, and all the judges that were there in that process. And yet God remain faithful to his covenant promise. That's a, that's a wonderful love relationship that we have there. We find that even as uh, the nations grew and, and there was a division that took place in the northern tribes and the southern tribes, God still loved Israel, and he would send his prophets, and the prophet is the one who would speak to the people on behalf of God, and he would tell them, he said, please do not continue to go in this direction. Even through Moses and all that I told you there in Deuteronomy, that if you'll follow my way and if you'll walk with me, I'm going to bless you. Do you ever stop and think about that? It is the heart of God that desires to bless you. That is his nature. It is his nature to want to bless you. Judgment is a, is a, is a result of our failure to be, walk in obedience to him. But in, in just looking recently at the Beatitudes, you know, we can often think about, well, I should be merciful, I should be humble, I should be, uh, you know, broken in spirit, I should not be worried about if I'm pr- pros- uh, persecuted. 
But you're the word that says, all, beginning all of that, blessed, blessed, blessed. God delights in blessing us. We rebel against God. And for some of us in our love relationships, if you violate us, then we find reason to push back and to eliminate you from our lives. The amazing love of God is, is that he pursues and he sends these prophets and all of that that we find in the Old Testament, whether it's Isaiah, Hosea, all of the pre-exilic prophets, all of them we're talking about. Please, please, Israel, come back to me, come back to me, repent, confess, come back to me. Over and over, the message is repeated in, in, in the prophets that are given to us. God is saying, I want to bless you. You know, thinking of um, a blessing, I, I remember my dad when he was uh, working in, in the mines there and working with one guy who had a rather foul mouth. And he was always asking God to damn things. said it all the time. That's most offensive to me as it was to my father. And, and he finally, after hearing him go on multiple times with that expression, he finally said to him, he said, you know something? You must know a different God than I do. He said, well, why is that? Well, you're asking God to damn everything. And the God I know wants to bless us. And I think that's so true. God wants to pour out his blessing. And so here's foolishness. And, and, and he even goes into great description of defining the level of foolishness of not walking with God and all that he had done for them and all that he is and following after God's many times of their own making. He talked about how foolish it was to, to make an idol, to take a piece of wood and carve an idol. This idol you had to pack around, and you would take part of that wood and make an idol, and the rest of it you would take and, and burn and cook your dinner. He said, does that not draw, you not see that that's not logical in that? And why would you abandon me? And yet they did over and over again. Finally, as we know, God had to send his children, the northern tribes under the Assyrians, into captivity. And he was hoping that the southern tribes would respond and, and not be um, so rebellious and not, not rebel against this wonderful love that God was giving to them. And yet we find that they did. And he then had to send his children into bondage through the Babylonians. And they were to spend 70 years there. 70 years because of every sabbatical year violated. That's 70 years, 490 years they'd gone without Sabbath rest. I remember when I was in Israel and we were there at the what is remaining of the temple there and this lady, her name was Sharon, she was guiding us and I said, do you practice the Sabbath rest here every seventh year? And she said, no. And I said, well, you should. You know, that got you in trouble one time. What do you mean? I said, well, you spent 70 years in. Where did you hear that, she said. I said, well, it's in your Bible. Oh, oh. So God had to send his children into what uh, was a major timeout, 70 years. And he loved them. And here I find then that what he chooses to do is to send a love letter to them. As soon as they're put into captivity, they're going to be there for 70 years. Jeremiah tells us about this. 
I was struck by the fact of the number of times that people have found themselves in a crisis. And, uh, and I'm particularly sensitive to that with, um, with mines, coal mines, and other kinds of mines when there's a, there's a cave-in or something and men are trapped. Uh, it's really of interest to note that what they want to do, and what many of them do, is they write love letters to their family. And they want to say things to them. I, I find that same kind of thing that goes on in military situations where people are in a major campaign and it looks as if uh, they're not going to survive. And, and they want to write a letter. And they many times say, this may be the last word that you hear from me. Such was the case with Major Sullivan. And he wrote a letter in July the 14th, 1861, It's a lengthy letter, and I'll not go into all of that, but some of it I want to capture for you. Here he says, my very dear wife. He's writing a love letter to her in a crisis, and he's writing a letter to her so it might ease some of the pain. Indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I felt I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eyes when I am I shall be no more. He makes some comments about his love for the country and why he's doing that, the, the duplicity of his mind with trying to, wanting to be with his family and yet feeling this need to serve his country and help for the freedom that was going on during the Civil War. Then he gets on down there a little further in the letter. Another paragraph, he says, I know that I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps it's the waft prayer of my little Edgar, that was his oldest boy, young boy, that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have oft times been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness and struggle with all the misfortunes of this world to shield you and my children from harm. But I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little freight and wait with sad patience till we meet again, no more to part. Says some other things there. And then the last paragraph, he says, as for my little boys, they will grow as I have done. He grew up not knowing his father. they They will grow as I have grown never have known their father's love and care. Little Willie is too young to remember me long, and my blue-eyed Edgar will, uh, will keep my frolics with him among the dimmest memories of his childhood. Sarah, I have unlimited confidence in your maternal care and your development of their characters. Tell my two mothers, I call God's blessing upon them. Oh, Sarah... I wait for you there. Come to me and lead hither my children, Solomon. Now that's a 
a pretty intense letter. Uh, I would think that that would be the type of letter that she would hold on to for, uh, for a long time because she was, he was speaking into the depths of her soul to try to bring a point of reference for the agony that was going to be upon them. And uh, such it was. He didn't make it back. And this was the letter that came upon them. Well, when I look to the letter that God wrote to his loved ones, his Israelites, I find it in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. And I want you to just turn there with me. I want to point out a few things that he says to these people. Now note, he was the one. He was the one that sent them into uh, captivity amongst the Babylonians. And he was doing that because of their disobedience. It was a, it was a love. I think we as parents understand that. We've said the things that our parents used to say to us when we were going to discipline our children. Now, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I never fully understood that. But I said it, you know? But I think that as I've grown older... And I've looked back on the times of even the times of disciplining my children. It was love that drove that. It was not anger, it was love. And I wish that uh, circumstances had been that I never had to do any of that. God was doing what he was doing out of love. And here they were, taken out of their land, transported to another land, and they were going to be there for 70 years. And he gives them some very specific instructions here. Not many, but there are some. Look what he says. I'm in the 29th chapter. Uh, He said, uh, I'll start at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I think that what I can gain from that, this is not a situation that's out of control, This is something very much in the control of God. God is doing this deliberately, on purpose, by design, to accomplish his overall purpose. And then he says, first of all, and that would be the first thing I think that he'd be noting for us, that I'm the one that's in control. And then he tells them, verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and uh, do not decrease. What is he saying here? You're going to be there a while, just live normal life. This is going to be the nature of what's going on. Uh, live life as it will be at that point. Now, you would, I, I would think that if I was taken into captivity, the one of the things I would be asking is, how long? I mean, what, what, should my, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, he says it's going to be a while, 70 years. He doesn't say that specifically, but that's what it is. So you're going to be here a while, so settle down. Don't fight against it. And then he specifically says that he should do some things in relationship to, um, to the people that was there. Look at verse 7. Thirdly, he says, not only am I in control, not only do you need to just settle down and be where you are, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into, exile. And verse 7, and pray the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. So um, here he's saying is, is that much like either Daniel, when he was taken into captivity, 
and his friends with him, uh, Joseph, when he was down in Egypt, they were then in that place by God's design, and they said, make the most of it, and actually, you can become a blessing to those people. Reach out to them, you know, share what you should be sharing, you know, the, the love of God, the truth of God. And if it goes well in that process, it'll be well for you as in addition to that. If you seek to rebel or fight against this, it only complicates the matter. So that's the third thing that he says to them. Now, the fourth thing he says in verse 9, he says, be very careful who you listen to. Verse 9. For, um, <clears throat> verse 8, I mean, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts means the God Almighty, all-powerful, who governs all force and authority. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. It's really interesting, this group of false prophets. Before they went into captivity, and Jeremiah was standing there, and he, he was having to say, God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. He's going to take a nation. And they, they tired of hearing Jeremiah. They tried to kill him several times. They put him in prison. They wanted to get rid of Jeremiah because he was speaking the truth of God to these people saying, you better repent. The false prophets are saying, look at what that prophet is saying, man. He's not saying anything good. Who wants to listen to this doomsayer? Now they get into captivity and they're saying, we're here, but it's not going to last long. We're going to get out of here pretty soon. And God says they were as false when they were here as they are when they're there. Don't listen to them. I want to tell you, just as a side note here, I don't think there's anything more difficult in life that when things are not going well, to hear horizontal voices that are as dumb as a stump try to talk to you since. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me. Listen to God in that process. Okay. Then he's, and then I love this, and this verse has been so taken out of context with so many people and making the application in so many arenas. And this is what he says in verse 11, and this is the beginning, the sweet part. Verse 10, he says, for thus saith the Lord, when 70 years have been completed in Babylon, now they know the time factor, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. This is not a permanent thing. 70 years, you're coming back. And of course he did. He raised up even his servant through the Medo-Persians, Cyrus, in that process to bring them back. And he says, the reason I want to bring you back, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon the Lord, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I love that declaration of the Lord several times in there. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I love the fact that he's telling them, even though I put you in captivity, I'm not done with you. You have not broken the relationship to where I'm going to give up on you, and there is no future plans for anything that's going to be going on. 
He says one additional thing, and it's found in the 31st chapter, which carries in our theme then of the gift of love. Verse 2 of chapter 31, Thus saith the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's the message that the Israelites had the hardest time grasping. And they had to go horizontal way too often, looking for something that was already there. But he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What he's saying to Israel is, I will never, ever stop loving you. Never. Now, you may not always be lovely, (laughs) but I will never, ever stop loving you. I love that love message that is there. And I'm thinking, I want to be loved like that. I want to be loved the way God loves Israel. And that's the good news of the Christmas message is that that story goes on. But we must be better than the Israelites in sense of that. We must read the love letters that God has written to us, the things that he says to us. I read just a few of these. And, and even when I think of Israel, I, I, I want us to be reminded that God's love is always there, even in the darkest times. This love is everlasting and changeless. If he's ever loved us, he's only loved us with his best, and he's, he cannot do anything else but love us with his best. He doesn't have degrees of love. It is his full love by which he loves us. And I love the fact that even though he's speaking corporately to Israel, He's speaking specifically to individual. God's love is a tender individual loving kindness that is manifested in mercy. But we must read those letters that he's written to us. I think of uh, too often that we don't have the joy of the love relationship because we don't read the letters that are meant to be read. I think of uh, Elizabeth Barrett. She became the wife of Robert Browning, perhaps know that name from English literature, but her parents disapproved of the marriage. The daughter, however, wrote almost every week telling them that she loved them and longed for reconciliation. After 10 years, she received a huge box in the mail that contained all the notes she had sent. Not one of them had been opened. Not one of them had been opened. Although these love letters have become an invaluable part of classical English literatures, it's really pathetic to think that they never read any of Elizabeth's love letters. Had they looked at just one, the broken relationship with their daughter might have been healed. And maybe the reason we feel broken and alienated from God is because we don't read his love letter to us. He's written us. I read you just a few segments of that about his love. We talked about this three weeks ago. See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know him. I read in Romans chapter 5, while we were still helpless, like Abram, 
who became Abraham, the father of many nations. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates, God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have not received, uh, through whom we have received this reconciliation. So the celebration is, is what God has done for us. This is his love. I love that God demonstrates his own love towards us. I love what he says in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in that whole context that he says that I didn't come to judge the world. The judges are the, the world. The world is already judged. I came to set them free from judgment. This is his love note to us. And I say, oh God, I never want that taken away from me. Romans 8 tells us further love note to us. And we know that God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He has a goal for us that we become like Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or trouble, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were, we were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, what things? Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and etc. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, anytime we begin to see a list of things that seems to be hyperbole or overexpressed, it is because it's trying to get the point across, and this is what he's trying to get across, is the depth of his love for us. And here he says it. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's love for us. That's what we want to hear, you know. Um, you know, that 
I've heard it sung so many times at weddings that I've done. I'm not going to sing it because my voice is not good today. I shouldn't sing it anyway. But, um, you know, it goes, Tomorrow morning when we wake up, ah, I will be there. You know, and what we're really saying to our wife or husband, whoever's singing it, is that I'm here. I'm here for the long, for the long stay. I'm, I'm, you can count on me. I'm going to be here. And we receive that. We think those are the most tender moments, and women in the audience are, are weeping, and, and we're, you know, they're up on the platform, and usually. Uh, and, and it's just this romantic thing, and, and we love that because it's a commitment of love. God says, I love you. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up, I'll be there. And the next morning, and the next morning. There is nothing that will ever cause me to deny you, God says. Now, I may have to discipline you. I may have to correct you. I may have to send you to 70 years. But even if you fall into a place of difficulty, I'm going to send you a love letter. I'm going to let you know what to do. Do you know that God's love letters tell us what to do, even in the world we're living in right now? He tells us things such as occupy till he comes. He tells us things that we should love each other. We know how to conduct ourselves here. We know how to be a godly influence in our country. But we cannot be that if we've lost sight of who's in control. He's the one that sent the Israelites into that. He's the one that's controlling the world we're in right now. And he's asking us, be influencers for me in that process. 